Hello and welcome to another episode of I Love This You Should Too. My name is Indy Chocolate Sauce in the Tub Randawa, and with me is Samantha Shower Stabber He's. And we are going to be talking about the movie Psycho today. If you haven't joined us before, this is going to be the spoiler episode because it's going to be film analysis and reviews. So we are going to be spoiling Psycho, and really, you should you should have seen it by now. Me too. <laughs> and we're recording from a dark and stormy night in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Oh, yeah. it is pretty dark it's and rainy. It's actually pretty dark and stormy. Yeah, it feels like the type of time to. It's like like when Marion Crane first pulls up to the Bates Motel. <gasps> creepy very how are you doing today samantha i'm good it's feeling fall i'm excited to get out my cute fall outfits what about you indy i'm excited for cute fall outfits too but i don't have anywhere to go because i still i haven't been brought back to work maybe by the time this airs i will be but i'm still on uh covid furlough so, so I'm loving it, just going to the gym all the time, getting swole. Oh, please don't say that on our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you know me, one of those real gym guys now. Yeah. I just uh, just go there, talk with my bros about my gains. Oh, God. I eat so many chicken breasts every day. <laughs> That's where all the chicken keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> what if I just went back to work and I was just jacked? I don't That'd know. Be, awesome. be the most ripped librarian <laughs> around I feel like you could have like a an Instagram or something of you just like posing with different books every day. Yeah, and then little kids, because I always work with children, they're yeah. like, "Where are the Robert Munch books?" And I'd be like, "Over there," and I do a big pose and like you flax, know. and all the moms would be like, "Oh, you're our favorite librarian." <laughs> and they'd be like, "What's with that guy? What a weirdo!" <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we kind of enjoyed the end of summer a little bit. We. Went for a little trip. So it's been a while since we watched Psycho. Yeah. You did get a big lesson on uh, on G-Funk and the rap scene in Long Beach City, California in the early 90s on the way home. Really, we should have recorded that. That would have been an episode. That would have been an episode. Just me talking about stuff you don't care about. <laughs> I do care. Which is the alternative title to this <laughs> Talking podcast. about stuff Sam doesn't care about. <laughs> <laughs> Also known as I Love This, You Should Too. <laughs> so how's this uh, podcast work for people who've never listened to before? So we are a weekly podcast where every other week we introduce a new movie. And then the weeks where we're not introducing a movie, we talk about the movie that we watched the prior week. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Um, I, I, I think that made sense. I think I just didn't follow it. But yeah, we, we take turns and Samantha had never seen the movie Psycho. And I thought she should have. Well, actually, that's not entirely true. You'd seen the first half of Psycho about 14 times. <laughs> not 14. That's too many. You've seen the first five minutes of Psycho over 10 times. Yeah. Yeah. You've <laughs> never gotten through. And oddly enough, we went to watch it a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you made it about halfway through, and then you were sick and had to go to bed. <laughs> yeah. So we had to do it again. That wasn't my fault. No, it, you know, it's not your fault. You're sick. But it was too just, scary. It was too scary. And yeah, she had to go to you bed. Had to throw up. <laughs> you threw up out of fear. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that was that was a thing. Lots of. Um, but we'll talk about that when we okay. talk about history about this movie. But we should get to the big title of our podcast. I watched Psycho. Hadn't seen it in a while. I still love it. Do you? I liked it. 
You liked Psycho. I liked Psycho. What do you like about it? Um, it's very classic. Uh, and I feel like I've seen some scarier movies now that we've been dating, and I, um, I feel like there's a lot of like calls and like homage to Psycho in lots of different movies. Very true. So I, I I really appreciated that, and I liked being able to see lots of the. Um, like kind of origin story of some of these little things that you see in other movies. It's definitely an influential movie, one of the most influential films of all time, really. But let's uh, let's go through some things. I want to hear what you think, but then also we can talk a little bit about some history because it's it's an interesting time when it came about the structure of this bizarre movie, um, some of our favorite characters, and just mm-hmm. the performances, which I think oh, were absolutely. really solid. And of course, we're eventually going to have to talk about the shower scene. Yeah. It's a very big deal. Yeah. And I also want to talk a little bit about women in this movie specifically, but like Hitchcock and horror as a whole. Okay. So when you were watching it, you've seen the first half many times. Yes. Up until she kind of gets to the motel and gets stabbed. That's yeah, so kind you've of seen her get killed. Multiple times. But at that point, did you know that it was Norman who did it? Or was that a surprise to you? Did you think the mom was like an actual murderer? I didn't. The first couple times I saw it, I definitely thought that. But um, this time I went in, and maybe the last time I saw it, I went in kind of knowing that it was him. And I don't know if that was something that I just heard or, um, or what, but I really kind of felt that it was just Norman in the house. And if you could think back to way back when, the first time you saw Janet Lee, who I think I called Vivian Lee you on the did. last episode, <laughs> but we were talking about Gone with the Wind not too long before that. But this is, of course, Janet Lee. Uh, the first time Janet Lee gets killed, do you remember way back when? What was your reaction to her death then? Oh, I don't remember. Because it's bizarre that the this big Hollywood star dies. And not like at the beginning, beginning, because then you could have a whole other movie after that, but kind of just about halfway through. I think yeah. it's about 40% of the way through the movie. Do you remember my reaction? No, I remember Janet Lee's reaction. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't watching you, oddly enough. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I do occasionally, when we're watching your movies, notice that you'll like look over to see what my reaction is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually looking to see if you're still awake. I am awake. <laughs> Didn't we just say that this took... 14 tries because you fell asleep many times? I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) New topic. (laughs) Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the context about when this movie came out. The history surrounding it. Okay. So it came out in 1960. And when it got made, it was like very remarkable. Hitchcock had been doing these big, shiny blockbuster movies with A-list celebrities. He had done thrillers for sure, but he wasn't really doing anything like seedy or horror in a real long time. You could kind of see that in some of his early work but not to this extent maybe and it was like real bizarre to see someone reach the top which hitchcock had he was he had already made um vertigo north by northwest rear window i think was before yeah birds birds was actually after is it the birds or birds i think it's the birds okay i thought about that the other day when we were talking to about this to somebody and they were like oh 
birds was my favorite. And I was like, that doesn't sound right, but I'm not sure. <laughs> and I, I didn't feel confident enough to like ask or say anything in the conversation because I was like, what if I lay wrong? What if it's just birds? <laughs> it could be just birds. The psycho. <laughs> the psycho. <laughs> But yeah, like a lot of his big movies, Strangers on a Train, Rope, all of that was earlier. So this movie seems a lot like a young, new director. A little but bit. it's way at the end of his career. I think he was probably like 70 years old and really? been making movies for 40 plus years by this point. Wow. Because he actually has a real long career. And we won't get too much into just Hitchcock, but I think a lot of what made him great is that he jumped on new technologies very early and mm. used them to better than anyone else he was an early adopter of a lot of things and he was like at the beginning of sound really he was around since then oh. so he had a he has a real long career but he went back into this him one sound really old he was he was at the beginning of sound <laughs> yeah he was making movies when sound was new and then he stopped making movies and died when you had like full dolby surround sound which is not too different from the technology we have today huh he had a very long career. That's that's amazing, because usually people don't have a career that long. His first film was in 1925. Holy. So we think of him of all of these 40s and 50s American movies, but he'd been doing things for a long time before that. Like, his lifetime is a completely different lifetime from ours, which is amazing. Yeah. Usually things like, like, yes, classics, but usually things that are this, like, prolific and stand the test of time and are still being watched by, like, current generations, usually they're not from, like, the 20s. Yeah. Yeah, he had such a long career. and uh... But anyways, when he got around to making this one, it was something that he really wanted to do. No one else wanted to get it done. So he ended up mortgaging his house to get the money to do it. He shot it with his TV crew because he had a TV show at the time oh. because it would just be cheaper. It's on sets that were already existing. He wanted Bernard Herman to do the score like he had done many of them, but Herman was charging too much. So he wrote it just for a string quartet rather than a full orchestra. Oh. And that's what gives us the, the really iconic music of it. High pitched. Yeah. yeah. And when it came out, like lots of the trailers depicted it as Janet Lee stealing money and that's kind of what the movie was about oh like a heist movie almost. a little bit and that's kind of what 33 percent of it is yeah. it must have been so jarring for an audience to see like oh i'm gonna go see this janet lee picture because she's the big star and then she gets killed off and you're like what the hell is this what yeah. am i watching and then the other trailers were those ones where it's hitchcock just walking around the house saying look at this painting interesting isn't it <laughs> but i can't do a hitchcock because he sounds like he has marbles and peanut butter in his mouth all the time marbles and peanut butter you can hear his jowls when oh, he talks gross. he's very jowly yikes and this movie was also the first to do a bunch of things at the time movies would just play over and over again if you go to the theater so people didn't really adhere to start times you would just go see a movie and you're like oh i'm halfway through but i'll just watch it through and then i'll catch the beginning right after it this was the movie that really instituted start times so there'd be big posters outside and cardboard cutouts with hitchcock saying like no one's going to be admitted late under the punishment of death or something like that it was oh. over the top but he said like the no one's allowed to come in late the managers have been told that if they want this movie in their theater no one comes in late wow so that's what institutes start times as we know them now cool it also really pushed the Hayes code the Hayes code was this old production code before the use of ratings and there were so many things that you couldn't do and 
I took this class on American gangster cinema and we just talked about the Hays Code all the time. And it had the weirdest rules. Like you couldn't show a pregnant woman's shadow. Like that was a thing that was against it. Seriously? (laughs) But of course there was so much in Psycho that they were against. Um, This was the first time a toilet has ever flushed on screen. What? Yeah. Really? (laughs) It is. That's insane. That's one of those trivia bits that like everyone always talks about about Psycho because it's such a silly thing. This is why nobody wants to play Trivial Pursuit with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's one I think a lot of people out there okay. know. Uh, it was also the first time a non-married couple shared a bed. <gasps> it was very implied sex, which was really pushing it at the time. And he got around all of these things by just saying like, okay, yeah, I recut it. And then you just send the same thing back and people were like, okay, that's a little bit better. And wow. <laughs> the the South Park guys did a lot of stuff like that on their movie, but Interesting. I digress. I think this may have been the first blockbuster as well. Like the term blockbuster may have been coined from this movie because people lined up around the block right. to, to see it. I think this was the first one. I might be wrong. Sometimes I'd heard it was Jaws, but that seems late. That does seem late. I think that was the summer blockbuster. Especially that... for a movie yeah. that like instigated start times. Yeah. I think that that makes sense. Yeah, it was just really revolutionary and strange. And I think one of the strangest things about it is the structure of this movie. How did you feel watching it when you eventually got to watch it all the way through? Does it feel different and inherently wrong like it does to me? feels like two different movies. It feels like after she gets murdered, a whole new movie starts. Definitely. Yeah, I think there's like, like you always say, like an act one and an act two. Yeah, because most movies you can break down into a five act structure very easily. I have no idea what the acts would be on this one. I'd say act one, act two, but I'm not someone with a film degree. (laughs) No, that doesn't matter. But like you get all of the stuff of her stealing the money. That seems like its own thing. And then her at the motel. And then after there, it's kind of just all over the place. It's it's so hard to pinpoint how the structure flows and also why. Yeah. When people break from convention like this, you can always say like, oh, it's done for this effect. And in this movie, I have a really hard time understanding why it breaks from those conventions so much. Other than to keep the audience on their toes, which I guess is a big part of it, right? Yeah. If you have like multiple twists in a movie you might as well just throw everything away and kind of make your own thing and people are constantly going to be looking for some sort of familiarity to latch onto, and hitchcock doesn't give you any of that and i think that adds to the uh like uncomfortableness you kind of feel throughout the movie where you're never sure what's happening you're never sure who's good and who's bad you're never sure like who's doing the right thing Definitely. And I think it's new to horror in that respect, because Mm -hmm. so many of your villains before this, it's Frankenstein, it's King Kong, it's Dracula, where it's much more clear cut who the bad guy is. Mm -hmm. This started straying away from that. And so many of the plot points are all just misdirections, like all the attention given to the money. There's all those shots of the envelope and then the newspaper, the attention paid to the car about her going and this is the car I want and all that time spent at the dealership. And even to Janet Lee's character, we learn all the stuff about them. And then all three of those things are just thrown into a trunk and sunk and never seen again until the last shot of the movie. When they're pulling the car out. Yeah. I definitely thought that the money would play a bigger part. And I thought that, um, like, them figuring everything out would be them finding the car, which is crazy that 
you don't actually find the car or the money until like the moment that you're finishing the movie. Mm-hmm. Do you notice that in the first few minutes of the movie, you get a bunch of people talking about moms? I never noticed that until this no. watch through. So the secretary talks about how her mom gave her tranquilizers and oh, right, yes. then her husband was so angry at her because she couldn't like do Consum- wedding night stuff on the wedding night. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Janet Lee's character talks about how like, yeah, you'll come to my home and we'll have a respectable night with our mother's picture watching over us. Oh, so all these protective mothers just kind of like put in there a little bit foreshadowing hmm. the big protective mom. One weird thing that I noticed was because you see her in her underwear in like the first scenes. Yes. Um, she's wearing white underwear when she's having her affair. And then Go she on. changes into black underwear when she's decided to take the money. Absolutely. I love that little bit. Yeah. That I found that like really interesting because she's now she's like a bad girl. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, you know, she's trying to be respectful and she's trying to do the right thing. Um, and so she's wearing her white underwear and then she decides to take the $40,000 and, uh, then has to put on her bad girl black underwear, which you'd think that's what she'd want to wear for her, like, affair day. But to her, she doesn't want some, like, illicit relationship. She wants, like, a traditional one. Right. And it's not an affair because they're both single. hmm But it is still kind of untoward for the time because they're not married. Yeah, I love that switch to the black bra. And then when she decides that she's going to give back the money, you could read into the showers as kind of like cleansing her of her sins and all that kind of stuff. But we'll get into that later. After the shower, it's so odd that we have all of this time of Norman hiding the body. Yeah. That also felt very weird. It kind of feels like it drags, like it's too long. And I wonder like why there was so much of that. Maybe it's just to show that like, kind of seemed like he'd done it before yeah yeah it seemed very practiced and very um like easy for him which was made it all the creepier right like he just knew what to do and he knew what to like snap into that moment where he had to go clean up the body and he's like yep this is what we do and i think at that moment we almost get a transfer of protagonist Mm -hmm. because i think throughout the first section of the movie you're seeing everything through janet lee's eyes And then after her death, I don't know who the protagonist is, really. It jumps around. Because it's kind of Norman, but it's like the first half, we're seeing all of the people through Janet Lee's eyes. Like Mm -hmm. the men in her life, Norman, uh, her boss, that creepy cowboy guy, we're always on Janet Lee's side. Yes. When it switches to Norman, it's like we're always seeing Norman, but we're seeing him through everyone else's eyes. Yeah. So it's not like we're following him, but we're definitely concentrating on him. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about just watching and eyes and all of that, because that's a big part of this this movie, definitely, right? For sure. Um, I just wanted to say one thing that kind of enhanced the movie for me was knowing how much $40,000 is in today's money. What is it, like 200 grand? It would be $348,000. Oh, so that, that's a like, lot of money. That kind of, because like $40,000 today is like not that much. Yeah, it's a lot, but it's not necessarily going to change your it's entire not, life. It's not life changing, exactly. Like that might not even be some people's student loan debt. Right. So 
$348,000, however, is life-changing. Mm-hmm. That's a new home that's like your children going to college. That's paying off all your debt and having money to be comfortable. That's like, that's huge. That's paying off all of his alimony and exactly. stuff and then living the life she wanted. Exactly. So that's a respectable life. So I found, I felt like I should mention that because that was something that like really kind of brought it into perspective for me because I was kind of thinking in today's money ther- terms when mm. I was thinking about $40,000. And I was like, but isn't that like Texas oil guy supposed to be like super rich? But that makes sense that he's buying something that expensive yeah. for his daughter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if I can jump back a little bit again, uh, when we get that switch did you find it hard? Because you're with Janet Lee and you're like, yeah, this is a leading lady. I'm on the journey. But now you're kind of focusing on a, you don't know he's a murderer yet, but you know, mm-hmm. he's at least covering up a murder. Yeah. Um, a little bit. I think it was um kind of strange to change gears like that. Uh, but I had already been really interested in him and as a character and I was kind of feeling like he was kind of shifty so I had been paying more attention to his stuff so I it wasn't quite as crazy a shift as I think it would have been if I had knew nothing about Psycho ever right this is a movie that I would love to have seen as a new movie mm-hmm. I wonder yeah I wonder what I would think about it then. that's kind of what I was thinking I was like because I've seen the first season or two of Bates Motel. I've seen, you know, I've, I've lived in the world, so I, like, know stuff about Psycho. And I think that seeing this without having any prior knowledge and only seeing those trailers or not even seeing those trailers, that would have been crazy. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, if this movie came out today, what I would think of it. Because this the movie is bigger than the movie. Mm-hmm. Its influence is felt, like, what is it, 60 years later, yeah. and we're still we're still seeing the influences on films today. People are still giving away copies of Psycho at their Halloween parties. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> People are still talking about it on their underappreciated podcasts. Exactly. Please appreciate our podcast. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, review, subscribe. Oh. Nobody ever reviews us. No. Someone's listening. We know you're out there. <laughs> Anyways, um... If we watched it today, I feel like I would appreciate it as a good movie, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't think it's amazing because it would be a part of the things it sets up rather yeah. than the creator of the things. Yeah. I would just go like, oh, that was good. Oh, I didn't see that coming. But I don't think I would be blown away if this came out after a generation of slashers and psychological thrillers. Yeah. And like gore and horror and ghosts and all that. When Marion gets to the motel there's also like a real drastic stylistic change because before that you'd been all uh, offices police officers bright lights of phoenix i think it is it's kind of like Mm -hmm. sunny and everything like that and then you get to the hotel and suddenly you have creepy paintings taxidermy birds that's that house up on the hill and it's raining the shadows change a lot and it switches into its second movie there almost yeah and then you get another movie after that it's just so all over that's why i could never watch it in one sitting (laughs) it was three movies my body was like nope one movie's done good night so norman who used one of my favorite words in this film officious yes (laughs) i need to use that word more because i live a very officious life yeah um, officious is my life. I need a shirt that says that. 
My life is officious or officious is my life? My life is officious. I think that's one of our new merch items. People are going to think that's something really cool, but then you're like, yeah, I work in an office. (laughs) I do. I spend 40 hours a week in an office. (laughs) Um, But uh, I really liked the complexities of his character. Um, He did such a good normal guy. He did such a good creepy guy. He did such a good crazy guy. He did such a, like, cold-blooded murderer and then like switch to like errand boy almost when he's cleaning up the murder scene so i really liked how much his character changed and how that kind of spoke to like just how like mentally ill he really is yeah he could just oscillate between like charming innocent deeply unsettling so quickly and his performance was so nuanced and it's always dependent on who he is talking to Mm -hmm. and what he thinks that person already knows. It's one that I just appreciate more and more each time I see it. Cause Mm -hmm. I, the first time I saw it, I was like, yeah, he was good. He was fine. No big deal. And now when I watch it, the scene with him and Marion talking and having their little sandwich, which is just bread and chicken, I think on a plate, but either way, them talking in that part is, it's just a fantastic, scene if you want to be an actor to just watch how he delivers and most of all his reactions to what she's saying yeah there isn't a single line he delivers that i feel like uh, anthony perkins the actor hasn't thought of tracing back all the way to his child he's like i would react this way to this line because of and you could ask him about anything about like why did you say it like that and he would have a story because everything seems so informed the way he speaks and natural Mm -hmm. which i think is the sign that he is like all of these things that he embodies like they say after he's he is norman but he's also his mother right and that really that like simple statement really encapsulates the fact that he really truly is both of those things and everything kind of in between Yeah, and to say that he's also his mother, we have those times where he is acting as his mother would, Mm -hmm. or what his version of his mother would do. But there's also times where he gets offended as if the mother version of him is just kind of there in the background and not fully out on display yet. And those little subtleties are what made his performance just amazing. Yeah. I don't think he was nominated for anything in this, which really? was a joke. Janet Lee got nominated for Best Actress, even though, was that a lead or was it supporting? I don't even know. I feel like her sister was in it longer than she was. Yeah, definitely was. I really liked her sister too. <laughs> yeah, Vera Miles, who uh, was kind of an up and coming Janet Lee type at the time. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Uh, Anthony Perkins, he, I want a biopic of Anthony Perkins, mm-hmm. first of all. I. Uh, he was kind of a pop star a little bit before this. Really? Yeah, he has some songs out. And also, so this was in 1960. I don't know how old he was at this point, but he's got to be in his 20s, I would say. Okay, yeah. And so he was growing up through the, the 40s and 50s. He was exclusively in same-sex relationships until he was like 39. Really? So I don't know like what you would call him, where what he had identified as, but he's definitely like non-binary mm-hmm. and... And at the time, that couldn't have been easy, but he was still like a working actor. And... Amazing. And after this, he only got cast as like psychos. Hmm. So it kind of put a real halt to his career, but also was like, that's what he's known for. Yeah. And him and Janet Lee both have said that 
although their careers were kind of killed by this movie, they mm-hmm. wouldn't take it back. Because right. I can't remember what the line was, but I think it's something about they'd rather be known for something great than forgotten for nothing. Ah, they said it better. I shouldn't have even tried to say it. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. And it's true. I mean, there are a lot of actors who are typecast. But would you actually have a career if you hadn't done that first thing? Yeah. That and, typecast you? That right. put you in that box? And he was in a, a good baseball movie, and it was one I couldn't find to watch for what? my big baseball thing. So maybe I'll get to see it one day. Oh. I love the first time we're introduced to him, because you don't know who this guy is, and he's such like a shy boy. Yeah. Right? He wouldn't say the word bathroom. I love that. He goes, oh, and the, um, you know, is over there. That's so cute. And But now I wonder, is it so cute that he's like this shy sheltered little boy or is it like i've uh covered up a few murders in there before yeah maybe he's like because we're led to believe that almost? it's like, the third murder probably yeah because yeah, there's missing women yeah yeah and i love his speech about uh the private traps that everyone lives in and that he was born into his and at that point you feel so much sympathy for this character yeah. and i think that's something that a lot of horror movies or movies about a killer i don't recall that ever happening before maybe you could say frankenstein that's about it right yeah at this point that just wasn't a thing to have a nuanced relatable sympathetic villain Mm -hmm. especially a a murderer right yeah do you remember if you first thought he was just like a nice guy at that point no because i feel like i knew that this movie wasn't like modern movies that have like 300 people in the cast right like i knew that there were only a few actors in this and someone that we saw for so long in the first like half of the movie had to have been someone important so i didn't i like was like is he the murderer is he the murderer and this is also because like i knew more about the movie right you knew someone's gonna get murdered you see clips of the shower scene always like everywhere it's referenced in tv shows and stuff like that and you see kind of parodies of it so it's I knew that was coming, which kind of sucks because... You can't you can't you escape can't, it. It's no, bigger than the movie. Not even having seen the movie, I knew about, like, Psycho. Oh, the one where she gets murdered in the shower. Right. So, like, I didn't know when in the movie that happened. I didn't know if that was at the end of the movie or the beginning or, You'd like... you think it would be at the end. <laughs> I thought it would be at the end. Honestly, I did. But um, I definitely went in judging on who I thought was most likely to be the murderer. Right. So that sucks but that's just kind of the world we live in and i definitely had the creepiest vibes from him yeah because although he does come out very innocent and shy at first there's a point where marion says like well why don't you put your mother somewhere and he gets offended by that Mm -hmm. he goes oh somewhere they always say somewhere (laughs) have you ever seen those places and yeah it goes on and on and he gets, uh, yeah, he gets very anger, angry. But he's not just angry. He also has a lot of guilt to mm-hmm. him because he feels so much guilt for what he, to think about doing that to his mother. Right. When we find out that it's him that killed her in the shower, why do you think he did it? Shame. For what? For wanting to, like, be with a woman. I think that's definitely in there. But so do you think it was a bit of the Norman that does the murder? I think so. 
But I think he's using his mother as like um, like almost like a tool or like an escape for how shameful he feels. And I feel like his mother probably instilled that him in, in him all his life because they said he had a very solitary life. It was just him and his mother. He wasn't allowed to like go be with other children. He grew up in that big house on the hill by himself. And I think that that's a very common thing that I've seen in film of like, well, mother's or a boy's best friend and is his mother is a very like unhealthy like storyline, right? For right. a movie like this. And I think that he loved his mother so much, but he also wanted to be like, like Pinocchio. I want to be a real boy and go out and do things that real boys do. And so he had those like natural feelings towards this woman or the last three women who stayed in the motel and his guilt forced the mother personality to kind of take over and then he ended up doing these horrible things that is pretty great i never thought about it that way and i really like that i think i I read too much true crime that's the problem (laughs) no that makes perfect sense and i think this movie definitely invites that kind of speculation Mm -hmm. right it makes perfect sense because there are those bits where Marion says, oh, come on in. And he's like, oh, I don't want to go in there. Mm-hmm. Right. She is kind of flirtatious with him at A points. A little bit. And he is definitely uncomfortable with that. And what you're saying with just using the mother kind of as a method for him to get out these urges he has mm-hmm. inside himself. And like the bad feelings. Makes perfect sense. And that's yeah. really good, actually. That's really interesting. Do you want me to write up my paper for tomorrow? Yes, please. <laughs> Because I had always taken it as that, yes, that was the mother part of mm-hmm. his personality. And of course, everything is kind of blended in because it's all all in his head, right? But I took it as the mother part took over because she was uh, she was threatened because mm-hmm. Norman was, in fact, attracted to this woman and did have some sort of real human connection. Oh. And when if he were to have this kind of connection with another woman... Why would he need the mom and not the literal mom? Because, of course, she's dead. But even in his own mind, he knows that that mother is a construction Mm -hmm. and the mother part of his brain could be like forgotten. Right. Right. It's not a a literal, actual person. Mm -hmm. So if he were to have that void filled by, say, Marion Crane, Mm -hmm. he could lose that mother part of himself. And it was kind of out of self-preservation. Interesting. See, I took it as more of like a multiple personality where he couldn't deal with those feelings. So the other part took over. I think it's it's both of those. And yeah, I wrote a paper about multiple personalities in high school. (laughs) I got 100 percent. Good job. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I uh, I definitely see the way that you're approaching it. And I think it's it's just like that's just kind of the like it it depends on how much you know about different stuff right like you know mother-son relationships and multiple personalities and guilt and all that Mm -hmm. just depends on how you're going at it very (laughs) cool ideas it's very rare that i have like an idea you haven't thought about during a movie oh no (laughs) yeah i i don't know i think there's a lot of things that you bring that are very different from where i'm coming from but i think this one seems also coming from where i'm coming from so it's not like opposed to my ideas yeah you look so proud i am very proud (laughs) i'm proud all the time i'm proud you got through all of psycho oh finally after (laughs) what is it four years now yeah about (laughs) four years in the making four years in the making uh 
Uh, but let's go back to Norman. So then uh, after all of that stuff with Marion and the cleanup and everything, he's really on his heels when he's talking to Arbogast and he gets caught in his lies and he's a terrible liar. Oh, he's terrible. But then as soon as Arbogast says something about his mom, then he gets assertive again. Mm-hmm. And then you wonder, is it him being protective of his mom or is that a little bit of the mom coming through? Of course, like both are... Just as legitimate, really. That's why I thought multiple personalities, because generally someone with multiple personalities doesn't know about the other personalities. Mm -hmm. Unless they live with people who point them out and say, like, oh, you switched again or whatever, like, whatever you'd say. Um, So I think that maybe he is doing two things. Maybe he has multiple personalities where he becomes the mother when things are uncomfortable or like urges he doesn't understand. And then also the other part of him is the guy who has his like skeleton of his mother in a wig in his house and is just creepy. And I think he's both things. Yeah, definitely. And I think the multiple personalities is definitely in there. Like they have the big speech at the Mm -hmm. end about it. I, I personally don't think there is a version of him that is a guy with a skeleton there no no you think he thinks that she's still real yes oh okay Uh, well of course he would have had to have put the skeleton there do all the stuff to the body to preserve it so that happened but i think that is so far buried at this point i don't think the norman walking around in this movie thinks like oh i better not let them see my mom skeleton (laughs) i think they he he has created a an elaborate lie in his own head of like, mm. nobody can see her because of she's frail, all this other stuff. And I think that's what he truly believes at this point, because he's been so detached for, from reality for so long. Yeah. I think better not let them see my mom skeleton is the, your new shirt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when he had the line about like, oh, I don't know how birds eat. And you're like, he doesn't know how birds eat. And yeah. then I went, oh, that's good. And I started writing down. I think that's like a part of it. Because first of all, he has stuffed birds everywhere. Yeah. Normally birds symbolize freedom. But here all of them are dead and stuffed and trapped. Just yeah. like Norman is. Just like his mom literally is. Yeah. And he's in this cage. This trap of his own making. Or trap that he was born into. However he says it. Yeah. And the bit about him not knowing how birds eat is like so sad. Because all he has to is like the slightest mimicry of freedom mm-hmm. of these stuffed birds that he's found dead. He doesn't have the ability to go out there yeah. because he's trapped like both at the motel and in his own mind. Cause... Exactly. Yeah. And then you have Marion coming in who is kind of the symbol of freedom because she's going to be going out on this whole new life doing what she wants with all of this money. And then she's the one who, of course, eats like a bird. <laughs> I also really loved towards the end of the movie when he's about to kill uh, Vera Miles' character, the sister. Yeah. And we get to see that it's Norman in the dress and he screams in the mom's voice. That creeped me out. I really loved that bit. And uh, Sam is holding him back and his like wig is kind of askew and he's screaming yeah. in an old woman's voice. That was brilliant. So was that his voice or was that someone else's voice? In the filmmaking or in that world? In the filmmaking. It was a different voice. Okay, that's what I thought because I was like, I don't think a grown man can make that noise. But because it was such an old lady scream. They did all sorts of really interesting stuff with the voices that I don't know exactly because there's so much to it. But I know there was blends of, I think, four or five different women. 
to blend their voices together along with Anthony Perkins' voice. Hmm. So it's a combination. And then in some scenes, when he's going back and forth, they took all of the bass tones out of his own voice to make him closer to the mom's voice. And they did lots of weird stuff like that with the the audio. But it definitely wasn't just Perkins. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. Because I definitely, that was something that I wondered about. Because I was like, there's no bed. That noise yeah. was so feminine and also so, like, high on the register of things that men can do with their voices. Yeah. What about the last shot of the movie? Right before we get the car, we get that monologue. So at this point, In I think... In his head? Yeah. He's yeah. completely become the mother. Yes. The Norman character is, is buried somewhere yeah. in there. What do you think of that little monologue? It was so creepy. That was brilliant. It His was performance. So, oh. It was so perfect though. Yeah. Like it was such a good way to end that film and just like really made me sure of the multiple personalities and the fact that he was just like that that he'd given in. The mother character was stronger. He couldn't he couldn't do any more Norman in his life because the mother just took over and he just couldn't handle it anymore. And I love the dissonance of that voice, the mother's voice. Mm-hmm. And then you get to see the different emotions kind of wash over Tony Perkins's face. That was some incredible face acting. Oh, it was so Just good. like, and you see, that's something that you see in a lot of movies where they're like thinking to themselves mm-hmm. or like crazy people or whatever. But that like little weird half smile that he does. It's a very Kubrick thing. There's oh. a lot of Kubrick movies where they look up like that and do the creepy smile. It was the perfect way to end that movie. Yeah. And they, he goes through all sorts of other things because I remember that creepy smile. Smile, but I didn't remember the 30 seconds of oscillating different emotions mm-hmm. that it took to get there. And that's what was even more impressive. Did you notice the little flash? Flash? Yeah. There's a, it's quick. I, I thought it, it's apparent enough, but there's a moment when he's doing that kind of smile that there is a flash of his mother's skull superimposed upon his face. No. Yeah, it's in there. Look for it, guys. Like, really, the last second before there's the shot of the car being pulled out. Mm-hmm. And that's a dissolve as well. So you get to see there's probably a quarter of a second where you see Tony Perkins doing the creepy smile, the skull over his own face, and a little bit of the car coming in. Maybe in I did shot. see that, but that's a lot happening at once. Yeah. And I, I, I definitely only, when we went to see it in the theater, woke up when the car was being pulled out. Yeah. So I don't think that I actually saw that moment before this last time that we watched it. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we should get to it. Everyone knows we're going to have to talk about the shower scene. (laughs) There is an entire documentary made on this one scene. I didn't watch it because I didn't want to be kind of colored by other stuff. I didn't really research anything about this movie outside of the like the fun trivia of when it was Mm -hmm. released. Because I feel like there's so much you can just watch and talk about. right? Right. We don't need all that extra stuff. So up until this point in the movie, it's it's very tense, this movie. Not in like a psycho killer type movie, but because she has this money, you think the cop's going to be after her, you think the boss is going to be after her. It's a really tense movie, I thought. It is. Um, there's definitely some like building tension throughout the beginning and you really kind of see just how precarious her life in phoenix Mm -hmm. her life in phoenix is and um just how she seems so stressed out and you can tell um between her let's go get married and 
her returning to work and you can tell she's just like barely holding it together and then the creepy cowboy guy comes and like hits on her oh, I hate and, that guy oh he was awful i i <laughs> i noted in my notes buyer is gross creepy he really is <laughs> Which is not actually something that I would say, but for some reason that felt like the right thing to say. He's about gross him. creepy. He's gross creepy. Um, so I think that I understand why there's so much tension in her like first set of scenes. Yeah. And at this point in the movie, before the shower scene, because of Norman's speech, she has actually decided that she's going to go back and give back the money. And she's doing the math about how much she's going to owe. Mm. And she's going to go back and like face the consequences. Yeah. And so we get a bunch of relief at this point. We get so much tension. And then you get the relief of she's going to go back and do the right thing. And then what could be more relaxing than a shower? So you have this complete opposite feeling all of a sudden because she's showering, everything's safe. Because that's like the safest place in the world. Yeah. Your shower or your bed is where you're supposed to feel the most safe and well, especially the shower because there's so much muffled sound right like, yeah and all you can hear is the running water yeah and you're nude you're at your most vulnerable yeah and that's why it's such an effective place exactly. to to have something terrifying happen and she's kind of like washing away the sins of her, her yeah. theft at that point too so your first time through could you remember how how did the scene take you um i I don't really remember how I felt the first time that I saw it. I definitely think that I felt like surprised, but not surprised because like I said, this is such an iconic scene. You're like, oh, here it is. There are clips. Yeah, you're like ready for it at this point, right? Like I felt like I was watching the movie being like, okay, when's the shower scene? Um, and I was trying very hard this time around not to do that because I know there's so much important stuff in the beginning of the movie and there's so much important stuff after that, um, you can't spend the entire film waiting for the shower scene and then feel like you've seen the film and then watch the rest of the film. So I definitely felt like I needed to just like watch the shower scene, move on. Um, but I think one of the first times I saw it, it was, um, it was a little hokey, just based on, like, you know, how films do stuff like that today. And I think I'm more used to seeing more of it. That's the thing. Like, in this, you you don't see blood until you see the bottom of the tub. You don't see actual stabbing. You hear the noise. Um, but the noise doesn't always, like, match up with the actual stabbing that you're seeing on the screen. So it felt a little clunky and a little bit, like, old timey mm -hmm. a lot of it is done to get away from the sensors because right. you can't have a knife touching flesh right you can't have blood coming out of a person mm -hmm. and i can't think of a time in american cinema where someone was just like murdered on screen where you could see this much right and by today's standards of course like, you can't see anything but this was more than had ever been shown so they're really pushing the sensor there and they did it by all of those cuts Mm -hmm. I can't even remember the number, but I'm sure that documentary has it. But it it's, was quick. In something like 40 seconds, there's 55 cuts or yeah, something like that. There's it's one thing that I noticed this time. And because we watched the shower scene the first time we started watching it for the podcast, and then the second time we watched it all the way through, I really noticed it the second time as well, was that there's there's a shot of like her belly button. 
mm-hmm. and you can see the knife kind of going past her belly button. And it, like that shot, it's very clear that nothing, that knife's not going to hit anything. <laughs> like it's, it's just kind of showing the knife and her torso at the same time. But um, knowing that that was like very against the rules, I like understand why that shot's in there. And still, even though it's, yeah, of course, done to get around censorship, there's so many parts in it that I don't know how they did it with the technology they had then. And there was a shot for shot remake of this movie made in 98, I think. And it was Vince Vaughn that played Norman Bates. And I think it's Anne Heche is getting stabbed in the shower. And it's shot for shot. So literally, they're doing it, recreating everything. They They just remade a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. And it's shot for shot, and it doesn't work. Really? They didn't. They didn't get it. Oh, so there's something there that is too quick. And of course, there's this full ninety minute documentary just on those fifty some seconds. So I'm sure they'll go into it and why it's so brilliant. And all I know is it's impressive, and I don't understand it. It's like just too quick, too much, and there's yeah. so much going on. But what always uh, stands out to me is well first of all you have the the score you have those shrieking i assume violins maybe violas yeah something and it's way more harsh than any other sound you're going to hear from that because they must have just been like really striking their bows on it really hard Mm -hmm. but then that transitions into the cellos and as she's on the ground we no longer have those stabbing violins but rather this slowing cello and it gets slower each time as we see the life kind of drain out of her. I felt like that was her energy. Yeah, I took it as her heartbeat, right? Like it's just slowing and then that's it. And what I really love is after the last slow cello, it's silent and you just hear the water and going from the shock of those harsh strings right at the beginning to just silence with just the shower running. And we get the pull out of from her eye where you get to see the eye really close up Mm -hmm. and it slowly pulls out and it takes forever. It's such a long shot. It's so good though. Going right from the pupil of her eye all the way out and it's just silence with the water going. And then the camera gets up almost, goes out the room and looks at the money. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh yeah, what about that? But the how the music scored the life literally draining out from her was was brilliant and then incredible that really stark and harsh pull out from the eye was was amazing i think it's the the best shot probably in the whole movie not all of those quick cuts but that one really long take which is seems extra long and slow after you had more than one cut per second a second Mm -hmm. ago i think that part just adds a lot of like gravity and weight to it Mm -hmm. in case you think like you're getting caught up in the style of the killing. You're like, no, someone is dead here. And I I feel like I have a lot of issues with how people take this scene because I don't think it's to glamorize it or stylize it. I think it was just to mimic the brutality. Mm-hmm. Like those strings and the cuts, it's there to uh, to mirror how brutal the stabbing is. It doesn't shy away from that. It kind of leans into it. And that's all reinforced by that really long close-up and the the zoom out. And it's a shame that this influenced so many other people to like intertwine sexuality, glamorization, and violence against women. Because that's, that's what it spawned. 
Yeah. I don't think that was this film's intention. No. I think she's naked in the shower because that's where she's at her most vulnerable and at peace. I don't mm-hmm. think it was to sexualize. Yeah. What do you think? I agree. I think that she's definitely at her most calm because she's been driving for like 24 hours. She's like just finally come to terms with the fact that she's going to return the money. She is stepping into the shower where she feels she's safe and she doesn't know that Norman's watching her through the wall. She doesn't know that Norman, you know, can come and go as he pleases from her room. And I think that's something that a lot of people feel when they're in a hotel. They feel totally safe. They feel like it's their own space and you don't assume that someone can have like the master key to the entire hotel right and i think that um that really showed just how caught off guard she would be to be murdered in that moment Mm -hmm. and it makes her feel like an innocent victim right like she was gonna do the right thing yeah you just know that she was gonna do the right thing and you can see it as she's doing the math on the like hotel pad and and then when she's all like guilty and embarrassed and she doesn't want anyone to see the math so she flushes it down the toilet and she she like you really want to root for her to do the right thing you want to see her go back to um arizona and you really want to see her do the right thing yeah and i want to see her end up with sam actually like i want that to work out and it's hard because this movie kind of gave birth to so many of those slasher tropes of if you do something bad then you die if you have sex then you die and it's all about violence against women and it's particularly penetrative violence by stabbing and i don't think that that is the spirit of this movie no it's like if i made a movie and in my movie i had one character who always um he's canadian and he drinks coffee in a normal glass but he uses mittens rather than getting a coffee mug and it's just like oh that's just a thing that was in that movie but if 40 years down the line every movie had Canadians wearing mittens drinking coffee like that, Mm -hmm. then they'd be like, oh yeah, he started this stereotype. And it's like, no, it was just a thing. You guys made it a stereotype. Yes. And I feel like that's what Psycho suffers from. But let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about the role of women in this movie and how it influenced how women are portrayed in in horror films specifically, but slashers as well. Because it's so hard to determine from our perspective in 2020 whether or not movies from this time are like just being honest about the opportunities available to women or if they are being misogynistic because like I had a friend who said oh I can't watch black and white movies because all the women in them are just always secretaries or something like that they're so misogynist it's like it is but I think society was misogynist I don't think that was the time that's just showing what the case was but you were talking earlier about the uh, some of the women in this one. Like, what do you think about Marion's character? So I really loved Marion's character because I feel like movies of this time, women didn't have kind of rebellions unless it was the reason that they were, you know, bad or looked down on or bad things happened to them. And I think that she's living almost very modern for today life. She's having an affair, and back then it was an affair because having... They weren't married. They weren't married. Dating a divorced man was very, like, frowned upon back then. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, 
spending your time with someone who couldn't provide for you as a woman was just like it, it was seen as a waste of time, right? Like you wanted to get the best match. You wanted to find the person who could provide for you uh, so that you could go and have children. Yeah, you wanted safety so you could be more domestic. Exactly. That's kind of what all of the other movies were were perpetuating mm-hmm. as, as the ideal. Exactly. You worked as a secretary until you found the right man and you got married and you had babies. And I feel like, I mean, you know, just speaking personally, I feel like that's why people who work in administrative roles are looked down on today even is because it was seen as a very temporary job. Right. And people now have full careers as administrators and that's what they work at their whole life and they're very good at it. <laughs> and you kind of get the idea from Marion that after she gets married, she's going to keep working. Exactly. I she believe is she a work. working woman yeah. and I don't see her like her co-worker being someone who is now married and is probably just waiting to, you know, get pregnant or buy the house or whatever and start the next chapter of her life as a homemaker. And I think that that is what makes her seem like such a modern, such a like inspiring character. And I really enjoyed watching her kind of live her life and from the, you know, hourly hotel to her deciding that she had enough agency to take this money and go off on her own. And I think that um, I loved how modern she was because she took her own fate into her own hands. She asked her boyfriend to marry her and he said no. So she said, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to fix our problems for us and then you'll marry me. And I think that that is such a, a kind of uncommon thing for that time. And I loved watching her be super strong and flirtatious and kind of um, like very opposite to what the classic woman of that time was. I'm so glad that you said all of that because <laughs> I was dreading having to be like a guy telling you why, oh, this woman who was killed by a guy with mother issues really is a feminist icon. And no, you're like, oh, sure I think she she's is. totally a feminist she icon. She totally is. I she's, so appreciate that. She's ambitious. She knows what she wants mm-hmm. and she's willing to do what it takes to get it. But she also has a conscience and that gets the better of her. And like if she weren't killed... You'd say, like, this is, well, even being killed, she's the most complete character, really. You could make the argument for Norman, but he's, like, something completely different. He's several characters. <laughs> One thing that I love, like, another thing that I love about her is how she's a problem solver, which is something that you don't see a lot, even nowadays, in female characters. Is True. That they hit roadblocks, and that's like, oh, ha, 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 whatever. And it's very awesome and it's amazing to see and we need more characters like this in today's film of women who hit roadblocks and figure out what to do next and figure out how to get what they want yeah and i think that extends also to her sister's character yes so her sister goes to the police Mm -hmm. they're not going to do anything so she takes it upon herself to go there sam's with her but i feel like she's kind of the driving oh i loved her yeah so I almost liked her more than Marion because she was very much like dog with a bone. She needed to like get to the bottom of it. She loved her sister so much that like even if her sister was dead, which is like a huge probability, I think that she just wanted to know what happened. Yeah. And her journey is like painfully true today that someone saying like, hey, this woman might be dead and police going like, ah, she probably just ran off. Mm -hmm. You know how women are. Yeah. 
And she has to deal with that. And she's the one to overcome it, not police or anything. She's the driving force behind it. And I think this movie often gets talked about of being the birth of terrible tropes against women. Mm -hmm. But that seems like such a byproduct, an unintentional byproduct of what these characters actually were. And I think if you sit and watch the movie, you're like, that's not who those people are. No, that's not at all how I took it. I think that they were strong and I think that they were kind of bucking stereotypes for the time. And I I think that we need to see that throughout the entire history of film. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And it doesn't help that like Hitchcock himself is kind of a creep. Mm-hmm. He's like a little bit of a grosso, not like a <laughs> full on Weinstein type, but more in that he had a certain type that he always cast and he didn't treat his female star as well at all, but not in any explicitly sexual way. He just he tricks people into getting the performances he right. wants out of them, just like Kubrick would terrorize his crew to make them actually scared. Right. Uh, Hitchcock did the same thing and he was not nice to Janet Lee at all. But then people will be like, well, he got a great performance, didn't he? And it's like, yeah, but there's probably a nicer way to do it. <laughs> but then when there are stories about directors being terrible to their cast, I always do kind of like them. And I was like, but I think of the it. The directors? I like the stories. And oh. I like that, like in The Exorcist, Friedkin would fire off guns randomly to scare the priests. I love that. I love those stories. But then if you put it in any other context... If a boss does anything to an employee, I'm so against it. But for some reason, the eccentric, crazy, abusive artist is a somewhat more romanticized <laughs> in my mind. But yeah, he Hitchcock's like a creep, but different from modern creepy directors. He's not just putting Uma Thurman's feet real close to the camera to like get off like Tarantino does. Oh. Tarantino, like, watch all this foot stuff. It's Ew. gross. Ew. He's always like licking feet. Whenever he has a role in it, he makes sure he's licking someone's feet. That's gross. Yeah. But anyways, um, he seems like he's actually like working out his weird scopophilia issues on screen. And it's very interesting. I'm sure smarter people than me have written many papers about it that I'd be curious to have summarized for me <laughs> nobody's smarter than you indy what about you mm, i have my moments there you go <laughs> but yeah it kind of gave birth to the idea that there's always that penetrative violence against women mm-hmm. men are shot from afar like cowboys and women are stabbed in showers yeah and it's because of this movie and you can't ignore that it did a lot of bad things in some ways, but I don't think that's that where wasn't it the was intention. coming from. I think it's like so many things where people read it and they're like, people can just interpret what they want. And if you're gonna, if you're an asshole, you're gonna interpret things in an mm-hmm. assholeish way. But I think all of those ideas about uh, the slasher tropes and all of that was retroactively put upon this after right. the '80s came about. Then they're all like, oh yeah, this is where it came from. But there was like a 20 year gap in there. So I don't think you can like blame it on this. I think you can blame it on Halloween. Mm -hmm. And even then, not as much as how things got in the 80s. But we were saying in the last episode that Janet Lee's daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis, was asked to be in sequels to Psycho, turned it down, but then finally did Halloween and essentially plays the character. It's the same thing. But she survives. And and she's the one that stabs. Yes. Stabs Michael. There's also a character uh, in this, it's Sam Loomis, I think is his last name. And then Dr. Loomis is the the character in all of the Halloween movies. So they're <gasps> very deliberately linking it to Psycho. Interesting. Yeah. It was oh, see, I didn't know that. Very much a play on that. 
But then the only other female character we have is the mother. And that's another one. It doesn't look great for representation of women. Women but, are crazy. <laughs> but there wasn't actually a mother. No. This was... is all just his interpretation yeah. of the mother character. And like we see her as some sort of monster figure. And you're probably more familiar with actual serial killer stuff than I am. You love your true crime. But there's so many of them that it comes down to an overbearing mother and head trauma. Yes. That's in so many serial killers. So I wonder now, is that true that those things are prone to creating a serial killer? Is that a narrative that we've constructed? Is it just kind of a confirmation bias? We think like, oh, it has those two things and he was a serial killer. It works out. Or could it be that Psycho is so influential that it affected our way of thinking and not vice versa? Because this movie came about before the idea of a serial killer. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the phrase serial killer when this was out, right? I think that was much later. Yeah, I can't. Okay, so I'm in a true crime book club. <laughs> and I, They're listening right now and they're like, Sam, lay those facts down. <laughs> Hi to my Pinot Noir Dahlias. Um, but uh, I have actually read when Serial Killer became a name and now I can hear you all screaming into your phones as you're listening to this podcast. But um, there is definitely a moment in time when it became a thing and i think it was earlier than this movie it was 1981 from what i'm seeing here the idea of a serial killer was was new right there must have been some like you well, yeah, of course there was there were so many but mm-hmm. that wasn't something in our vernacular and i think a large part of that is because police departments didn't work together yeah that is a, so you a bunch didn't have connectable crimes and you didn't have the ability to say oh well this crime matches this one in a district three counties over and and because they didn't communicate these crimes were filed as you know jane does and unsolved but they were never connected even though there was some like very obvious things usually that Tied them all together. And not everyone had a Vera Miles to push forth the investigation. Exactly. Lots of people are just missing. Yeah. And that's it. And still today. But we'll save all that for <laughs> a different angry rant. But like, I think you could make the argument that Psycho kind of put that into our mindset. That yeah. the overbearing mother is what creates the serial killer. Because that's definitely, whether there is factual basis or behind it or not, and I think there's some for sure. There's... It's definitely something that we think about when it comes to serial killers. You look at mothers who are too much or fathers who aren't present is how it's often reduced. Yes. Probably detrimentally so. I don't, they're probably putting too much onus on on that. But that's definitely a thing that's talked about with serial killers. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you can make the argument that comes from Psycho and not vice versa. Oh, I I think that it's a very psychological thing. And I think that... There is some perfect storm of combination that just makes you a crazy person. I shouldn't say crazy person. That's a bad way of putting it. It makes you very mentally ill due to your circumstances. Or perhaps a psycho. I don't think you're allowed to say that. You can when you're talking about the movie Psycho. Oh, true. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that... The head trauma and the mother issues and the isolation are the three things that you can kind of pinpoint for why he's like like he is. Why Norman Bates is 
Well, we don't know about head trauma to him. We just kind of assume because so many serial killers have that. stairs. You just assume he's fallen down at some point? You think that he hasn't fallen down the, <laughs> either the stairs inside the house or the stairs leading down to the motel? He's fallen down the stairs, like like Arbogast does. Yeah. Wasn't that an interesting scene? Yeah. It was done by, like, um, he's sitting on some sort of rig, just, like, flailing his arms, and then the rig slides down a slide on the stairs. Oh. Yeah. that's cool it was cool that's cool that whole sequence like when he's going up in there and you get the view from right up top mm-hmm. like you're you'd think you'd be seeing what the mother is seeing because that's usually what you get when you're going to visit a killer but instead you get it from directly above because there is no like killer mother yeah, yeah. Huh. good movie huh don't you love it it was pretty good <laughs> i like all the trivia too and i think that's making me like it more but i i don't think i can put it in the love category that's fair. I think this is a solid 8 out of 10, though. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm probably at 8 out of 10. Good. Okay. But that's love. Remember we established that more than 7 is love? Um, I, You said 7 out of 10 is love. I don't want to give it a 6.5, though. Yeah, it's an 8 out of 10. I just... It's a great movie. I don't think I can commit to it fully. Sure. Um, <laughs> let's talk about one more uh, film schooly type thing. Because I remember reading this article on Scopophilia by Laura Mulvey. And all you film studies people are like, oh, more Mulvey. That's just what I needed. Or you're going, more Mulvey. Just what I needed. What's a Scopophilia? Scopophilia. Um, <laughs> scopa. 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 I Scopo. heard Scopophilia. Like, oh, like scalps? Or like sculpting. Oh, sculpting. I was saying sculpt. Like, like in Ghost. Yeah. She, has <laughs> she has sculptophilia. sculptophilia. Yes. Oh, we finally put a name to it. <laughs> <laughs> I always call, because, um, and I think the term ghosting now means to like stop talking to someone. Yeah. I still use it as to go behind someone while they're making anything, even this food or whatever, and you put your hands on them and you uh, you sing Unchained Melody. That's ghosting someone. <laughs> you did that to me last night while I was holding laundry and I yeah, screamed. ghosted you. <laughs> I ghosted you good. I don't think that was the reaction you were looking for, but I no. screamed very loud. Um, so uh, scopophilia, scopa is to look and philia is uh, love. So the the joy of looking. I think that might have actually been the title of the Mulvey article, but it talked a lot more about rear window. You're, you're all creeped out. What's going on right now? No, is there I, a ghost behind you? No, I hit my arm really hard and I was trying to be really quiet about it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you could feel a ghost ghosting you right now. <laughs> no, I like hit myself on my elbow and it really hurt. But oh. I was trying to be a good podcaster and stay quiet. I appreciate Instead, that. Instead, I just distracted you with my facial expressions. <laughs> um, so, Scopophilia. <laughs> yep. It's, I think the article might have been on Rear Window, which, of course, if you've seen Rear Window, it's all about watching people. I have not. We'll get there eventually. Because I think... Psycho is like my fourth favorite Hitchcock movie. Hmm. Vertigo is the best. I think Vertigo is one of the best movies ever made, actually. Oh. I think it's Hitchcock's best. It's very good. Uh, anyways, <laughs> there's a lot of watching people watching in this movie. Right. I'd say through the first third of the movie, you get to see everyone through Janet Lee's eyes. I think mm. it's her, her perspective. And right at the beginning... The very first shot of the movie, I think, is that shot over the city of Phoenix, and then it zooms to a building, and then it zooms into the window. So it's very voyeuristic right at the beginning. Yeah. And it's kind of setting up the idea of watching people being watched. Yes. And, of course, you see it most directly when you have 
Norman looking through that peephole. And we get to see the shot of his eye, and then we get to see what he's seeing. Do you see the painting that he moves out of the way? I didn't see what the actual painting was. It's a painting of a nude woman being grabbed by two men. Oh. It's called uh, Susanna and the Elders. It's It depicts a scene from the Book of Daniel where two old men spy and on an attempt to rape a woman. So, yeah, kind of telling that she's bathing in it, too. So she's, like, bathing down by the river and oh. men attack her. So, of course, Norman moves that out of the way so he can watch... Her get dressed, or undressed. In the shower. Yeah. So we watch him watching her. And throughout the movie, we're kind of put in those positions. Like, first, we're made to think, like, well, what would it be if, like if I stole this money? And then it just gradually escalates. What would it be like if I had left town? What would it be like if I murdered someone? There's this constant escalation, and he's always trying to get you to identify with the perpetrator? A lot more than the victim. And I guess you can't really call Janet Lee too much of a perpetrator. She's not evil, but mm-hmm. she's she's committing a crime. Right. And she's doing what the audience would have thought of as illicit things at the beginning. And we're always meant to identify with them. And I think what I appreciate about Hitchcock is he's not just some voyeur himself although i believe i truly believe he actually is literally a voyeur probably (laughs) by how much this comes up in his movies right but he's not letting us be escapist and detached Mm -hmm. if you watch like a hostile movie you see all this gross stuff happening you're like oh gross movie whatever move on to the next thing yeah if you watch whatever escapist fluff that you might like to watch you watch that you feel good you're out of it I feel like Hitchcock, by doing all of this stuff, he implicates you. Mm-hmm. He, it's not just like, look at this terrible thing that's happening. Look at this terrible murder. It's look at you enjoying this murderer. Yeah. And he kind of makes it that you're not innocent in this. You're implicated in the crimes of the film. Oh. And that's something that I I really love because it's it's not giving us a pass on violence. It's saying that we're a part of this too and we should feel bad about it and i feel like violence is used so uh flippantly in a lot of movies mm-hmm. i don't think that's the case here and although this maybe gave rise to the movies that did it more than any other type of movie i don't think that's what was going on here and i think hitchcock makes you he implicates you in it right you're involved in those crimes mm-hmm. and i think that's that's good. I think that's responsible filmmaking. Yeah. And you normally wouldn't put anything about Hitchcock and how he looks at women as being responsible. But I think he doesn't do it frivolously, at mm. least. There's weight to it. And you should feel the weight of someone being killed on mm. screen. It shouldn't be just like a little joke. Unless you're like in a Dead Alive movie where it is literally a joke. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but he does do a really good job of making you feel like you're there. Yes. There isn't a lot of fantasy in this. There isn't a lot of um, kind of escapism. It's very much the real world. It's some seedy motel that everyone stayed in. And it's definitely um, something that could happen in real life. Well, any uh, any final thoughts on the Alfred Hitchcock classic that is Psycho that you are growing to love? I'm growing to like it a lot. Uh-huh. Um, I think that everyone should see this. And I think that you should take a good think about all the movies that you've seen and just how this movie kind of inspired all of those. 
Absolutely. The end. Couldn't have said it any better <laughs> myself, but I but, shall attempt to. <laughs> oh, of course you will. <laughs> Go. Tell us your thoughts and feelings. <laughs> I think if you reduce this movie to the birth of the slasher, you're it's reductive, and I think it's more than that. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a proto-slasher for sure, but Halloween is really the, the birth of the slasher genre. And I just don't think that Psycho is interested in the same things as slasher movies. So we're gonna, always going to look at the influence of Psycho, and people will be like, oh, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Black Christmas, that's going to be the first thing that comes to people's minds but i don't think that is true to the intent and feeling of the movie right i think up to this point horror was about monsters like you had all those hammer movies coming out in the previous two years you had the 1958 dracula brides of dracula in 60s uh revenge of frankenstein the mummy all of those things had come out in the in the previous two to three years but this this is what changed horror. Not that it gave birth to the slasher, but it took bigger-than-life, supernatural, non-relatable monsters who are 100% evil and there's no gray area. And it took those giant monsters and it brought them inside. Not just like inside your hotel room, inside your shower, but inside your mind. Mm-hmm. Because it's the birth, I contend, of a truly psychological horror or a psychological thriller. It's evil in an unassuming package. It's areas of gray. It's someone that can look like a charming young man who is then the biggest monster that you could imagine. I think its most compelling influence on horror is taking these larger-than-life creatures and reducing it into the most human thing and making it like just something inside someone's mind. Yeah. And that's why it's a great movie. It is a good movie. And it's also just very well crafted. If you're um, like a film person, you'll probably love all of the the shots. If you're an actor, you'll love some of these performances. Mm -hmm. There's some very good stuff. For sure. And if you're a writer, you'll be utterly confounded by it because I can't make heads or tails of of the structure Structure of of it. (laughs) (laughs) What actor we am. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, that was us talking about Psycho because. There's so much more we could say, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, but you don't want to listen to a four-hour podcast on Psycho, so we're going to end it here. If you do, let me know. I will I will do it. He will podcast <laughs> the crap out of it. Um, and next week, we will be back for another episode where I introduce what we're going to be watching in the following week. Is that confusing enough? I think that made sense. I was trying to make it. We'll have like, our little picks of the week and excellent. you'll tell me what we're going to watch. Exactly. It'll be fun. So or we'll, else. Or else. So we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone.